Uh, we're going to uh, cover a lot today, but the main passage, let's all stand, we're going to read First uh, Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 1, 5 through 7. So everybody stand, we're going to read this, and we're going to pray and get rolling. we got a lot to go, okay? I'm reading Second Peter 1, 5, 6, and 7. You guys can read it with me if you'd like to. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the truth and just our friends and family and Thanksgiving and we're just grateful that we are all get to experience this together. I pray that we would come today in an effort to worship you and learn from you and be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Pray the Holy Spirit would be welcome here in power to convict us of our sin and your righteousness and the judgment to come and to convict us where we are not trying to seek virtue, where we are seeking self-satisfaction. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would just be prevalent and prick the hearts that need to be pricked and uh, just pray that we trust you for moving mightily today in Christ's name I pray amen you guys could be seated now um, Billy walking in said uh, uh, hope you're ready that's why I'm not and uh, I want to say the same thing to you guys I hope you're ready God has laid some things on my heart that I'm going to share it with you out of his word. I hope that we rightly divide the word. That's the main thing I want to do today. But it's your job to come here seeking a heart to worship the Lord. If I'm no good, but the word is proclaimed, you can worship. This music we just sang, I was sitting there thinking that for a guy that's not a believer, that was a, a waste of 20 or 30 minutes of time. But if you are a believer, those words and the truths that we represented and sang about are so deep and meaningful. Let's real quickly talk about Thanksgiving for a minute because I am going to tie it to the sermon. Uh, did you guys enjoy Thanksgiving? Yeah. Uh, let's do, uh, and when I say something that you're firm, you're supposed to say amen. So did you enjoy Thanksgiving? Yeah. There you go. That's better. Um, I did too. It was, it was simple. I got together with family, and I really, really enjoyed my whole family being together. I enjoyed this year more than most. I enjoyed talking to them. I enjoyed listening to them. But they didn't know. I was just enjoying just watching them, uh, seeing how they interact and treat others and treat themselves, and, and it was a blessing, and I'm grateful for Thanksgiving. I don't know if you guys have thought much about why we do Thanksgiving. We look at it as a time to eat and, and to be around our family, but uh, Squanto, this, who here knows the, the story of Squanto? Okay, Squanto was a, an Indian that lived in New England, and as a boy or a young man, he was captured by the English and uh, kidnapped and turned into a slave. He was sold into slavery in Spain. He eventually got to England, where he learned English. And his master in England uh, felt compelled to say, man, the first ship we can get you back to uh, your native land, we'll, we'll do it. It took about another year for a ship to come along. But finally, Squanto comes back to New England area and finds out his entire tribe, all his family and friends and relatives he grew up with, were dead because smallpox had killed him. So he was the last of that tribe, but he knew English. He could speak English. So a year later or so, the pilgrims land, and they meet a Native American who can speak English. That is just providential and amazing. So that Squanto was able to help them communicate with the other Native Americans. He taught them how to grow corn. He taught them how to fish. 
for the right spots and how to grow their food. And when you think about it, Squanto did not enjoy being a slave. And I'm sad that he ever had to go through that. But God's providential hand. So that our way of life, Christianity could be moved into the western part of the world through an Indian that got kidnapped. How amazing is that? That, that he allowed the pilgrims and the Native Americans to, to meet and to grow in this bountiful harvest that they had. It was Thanksgiving, and our civil government decided it was worth reflecting on the thanksgiving of God's provision. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for Squanto. When he, he lived with the pilgrims the rest of his life and on his deathbed. I don't know if he ever became a believer, but on his deathbed he said, I want to go to your God's heaven. So he had noticed something amongst the pilgrims at least and wanted that life. And we do thanksgiving to remember. We want to remember God's bountiful harvest. And guys, that's one of the main reasons, not the only reason, for you should be in church weekly is to remember. We are forgetful people. We are forgetful people. I think you should come to church to worship. You should come to church to grow. Some of you should come to church to equip others. You should come to church for fellowship and for family. All these good reasons. But one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons is just to remember. We are a, a uh, forgetful people. Like I forgot to turn on my slide clicker. Uh, give me a second for my technological. Let me see if I can get this. All right. Remember, remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me to recall. It's a very important theme in Scripture. 198 times you will find the word remember, remembrance, remind, recall. Because we are forgetful. You think about the nation of Israel and uh, how knuckleheaded they were. I, at least that's the way I view them. How could they do this? God frees them from Egypt and they forget them. He gets rid of this enemy and he, they forget them. Matter of fact, Moses is up on the mountain getting God's direction for the whole nation 40 days and he comes back down and they're already worshiping a golden idol I mean they were forgetful God in Deuteronomy and he's warning the nation of Israel he said man once I give you the promised land and you got all this food and you got houses and you're making a lot of money you're going to forget me you're going to forget me and they did and we do I forget God's provision. So one of our reasons for coming to church is just so we will remember, that we will remember what God has done for us. We're going to try to cover 15 verses today. But to tie this into remembrance, let's first of all look at the last three, verses 12, uh, 13, 14, and 15. This is Peter talking. He's writing to this, the, the audience. Therefore, I intend always to remind we're on a theme of remembrance, to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are establishing the truth that you have. How many times have I ever heard that? Well, you know, you really ought to come to church. We'd enjoy having you. Oh, I, I know all that stuff. I know all that stuff. Guys, heritage is one of the deepest, most Bible doctrine sound churches you could ever attend. It's, it's hardly ever that I come here and learn some new great insight. I do occasionally, but that doesn't matter. God, we're forgetful. We have to be reminded. So we kind of be reminded of the truths that we already have. I think it right, this is Peter talking, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I knew that putting on my body, will be, I'll be dying soon, is what Christ told him. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. So Peter 
knew that you would have to be reminded, that the people would have to be reminded. And these things, these qualities, these things are what he wanted to remind them of. He wanted to be so firm in their heart and mind that they would be reminded. And these qualities we haven't even talked about yet. That's the sermon today. There are seven virtues, seven qualities, seven attributes that Peter told us we should be seeking after. I want to ask you guys a couple things. Um, first of all, let me tell you a little bit about Peter. First Peter and Second Peter. First Peter was written for struggles that were happening outside the church. They were being persecuted. They had suffering. He was encouraging them to endure. Second Peter was written about a year later. He was in prison. He was writing about a year before he died. And he, uh, he wanted them to know that there's going to be struggle within the church. Second Peter is about false teaching. The second chapter, we're not covering today, we're covering the first chapter, the first half of it. The second chapter is he tells you the character qualities of the false teachers, which I kind of thought that was amazing. You think he would say, here's all the ways the false teachers are teaching you silly things. Instead, he tells you that they're selfish, they're greedy. He tells you about their character. So what we're going to cover today is the, the pro side of that, what you need to be like, because he wants our calling and our election to be firm. If our calling and election is firm, that's a big protection against the false teachers he's going to talk about in the second chapter. So that's what we're trying to cover here. Um, let's go to verse 1. I'm going to comment some on it. I'm going to read the first part of it. You guys follow me there on your Bible or your electronic device. We're in, so make sure that we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have, tamed, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first two words of that verse encourage me. And I know that's what Simon Peter encourages you. It does. Simon, or Simeon, there were nine other Simons in the New Testament. So he tells you it's Simon Peter, so the audience doesn't get confused on which Simon it is. It's Simon Peter. But Simon Peter is such a such a me kind of guy, uh, he would ready, fire, then aim. You know, he, he was always ready to be there. When, when Jesus has just spoken, when they said, hey, we're looking for Jesus and others, he said, I am. And 500 guys fall down by the power of that statement. Well, Peter pulls out a knife and whacks the guy's ear off like, like, he, like Jesus couldn't handle it, right? He, he was in there. He's going, going, going. He tells Jesus at the Last Supper, man, when all these guys leave you, I'll be the one. I'll be the one here. And Jesus said, you know, before the Rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he did. He did. Simon was, a, in many ways, a screw-up. And that's why I like him so much. Yeah, I'm a screw-up. Now, Peter, Jesus gave me the name of Peter. On this rock, I'll build the church. Peter in Acts, I think it's 128 words, I may be wrong. In Acts chapter 2, gives a sermon that the Holy Spirit empowered a very short sermon to bring thousands of people into the kingdom of God. And so Simon Peter, just thinking about who he was, encourages me. He was a servant. Simon Peter was a servant. The better translation for that word, kurtios, is a slave. Simon Peter says, I am a slave. What a humbling statement. A slave had no will of his own. He had no time off. He had all his hours were at the, the behalf of his master. He, he really uh, didn't, didn't have, it was whatever he wanted him to do. So he says, I am a slave. Simon Peter, a slave 
Very humbling statement, very equalizing statement. And an apostle. Now, he throws the apostle. That's an office he had that says, what I'm about to say, you guys need to listen to. So very humbly, he said, I'm a slave. And he said, to those who have obtained a faith, faith can be obtained, and it should be obtained. If you're here today, your heart should be, I would like to obtain that faith. And we're going to talk, I'm going to springboard off this for a little bit and talk about faith in general, what faith might be as far as salvation is and what faith isn't, okay? Um, before I want to ask you a couple of questions, there's two types of people we're talking to today. There are the children of God, and there are the children of wrath. That's the only one you can be. And I want to give you a couple of questions to help you understand which one you are. And they're famous questions. Have you come to the place in your life spiritually where you know for certain if you were to die tonight that you would go to heaven? And what I found if I asked that question to many people, most people out there would say, boy, I really hope so. I hope so. Everybody would like to go to heaven. Well, the scripture says these things were written to them that believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. So God wants us to be secure and confirm our, our election and calling to know that we are his. So the second question is the one that's most important to the guy that's under the child of wrath. And I hope, I wish none of you were, I know some of you are, but take this question to heart. I mean, I want you to pretend I'm sitting right next to you and Jesus is sitting right next to you. And what your answer is in between your ears is what matters. Because you could give me the Sunday school answer. It doesn't matter. It matters what you'd really say. If you were to die, I hope nothing happens, but if you were to die before you got home today and you stood before God in heaven, and he said, why should I let you in? What would be your answer? What would be your answer? You need to Think about that. This is the most important question of life. Right there. Right there. What would you say to him? And what I've found through talking to most people, they say, well, my good outweighs my bad. I'm not, I'm not near as bad as that John Sykes guy. You know, I don't, I don't commit adultery. I don't murder people. I don't kill. Yeah, I think I'm a pretty good guy. And you know what? You probably are. You probably are a pretty good guy. When you're comparing to me, but when you compare to God's holy standard, you probably aren't. You probably aren't. And God has a way that we'll cover today that you could be reconciled to him. And that's the most important question for a non-believer. We'll get into the most important question for a believer here in a moment. Before I want to talk a little bit about faith and the things that it really isn't. Um, number one, uh, very, 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 very bright scientists. Some of them are atheists. Very, 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 very bright scientists are believers also. We'd have nothing to be ashamed of. The gospel and the information provided in Scripture is true. The world tries to fight it, and we do not need to fight the world. We know the truth. I'll give you this one, one little thing that I'm just amazed that, that people don't get. There were 108 prophecies written between 100 and 1,000 years of when Christ came that told about him. It said he'd be born in Bethlehem. It said he would be uh, sold, uh, he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. There are 108 of these statements. There was a guy back in 1958, a guy named Stogner, who had a, he was a probabilities professor in a college. He said, you guys group pick this thing, that, that he would be born in Bethlehem. You guys pick that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. You guys pick that his uh, uh, feet and hands would be uh, pierced. And he, they figured the odds of that happening from all the people who've ever been born up until now. And some of that could be true in you. You could be betrayed. But he said, what are the chances of all those happening to one person? The odds are one in ten 
with 17 zeros. That's an astronomical number. It's a big number. And the number is uh, so big. Whoops, uh oh, I hope I didn't turn this thing off. There you go. Oh, I, I whacked it. I keep hitting the pointer, forgive me. I'll get, they even showed me how to use this. Hmm. My slide's out of order. There it is. I'm sorry. That first number, 17 zeros, how big is it? Eight prophecies in one guy. Fill the state of Texas, three feet high, full of silver dollars. Put a red one on one of them. Let a blind guy find it the first time. That's one in 10 to 17 zeros. Okay. How about 16 of those prophecies happen? It has 45 zeros. That's an astronomical. How about 48 of them has 157 zeros? The number of atoms in the known universe only has 82 zeros. That's how astronomical just 48 of those prophecies happened. And all 108 of those happened in Christ. Why 60 minutes? And why don't they, why don't they tell this? Why don't we know this? Because the world wants to live the way they want to live instead of going to the truth. Now that was applying to your intellectual faith. And that is not what saving faith is. Your intellectual faith, your belief, that was a very, I think, a great argument for everyone should feel. What did Christ say? I need to follow him. I mean, golly, it's astronomical that someone wrote a hundred to thousands of years before him, and he was the one guy that all 108 came true in. I want to hear what that guy has to say. But it says in James that you believe in one God, you do great. The devils also believe and tremble. So merely knowing, I heard Linda counseling a friend of ours this week, and, and she said to that person, do you believe that Christ was the Messiah and he died for your sins? That person said yes. They intellectually agree, but I don't know that that's what saving faith really is, intellectually, because even the devils believe he was the Messiah. Faith is also something that we hope in, right? Faith is the uh, evidence of things not seen, the substance of things not seen, the evidence of the substance of things hoped for, <laughs> the evidence of things not seen. We hope for things and we don't see things. If I were to walk over and turn that light switch off, none of us, I don't think any of us, really get how electricity works. I flip the light switch on. You hope the lights come on. You do not see how it happened, but that was evidence of that. You can believe that evidence and you can believe that it will work. We have so many things we have faith in. You get in a car. There's between four and eight explosions happening thousands of times a minute right in front of you. And you have faith that that explosion is not so violent that it will kill you. You go to a restaurant. You eat a meal. Someone in another room prepared that for you. You have faith that it's not been poisoned. We, we, we apply faith all the time. We have hope all the time. But that is not saving faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema of God. That's how we hear it. But in, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's a gift that God gives you. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, there's two I'm learning there's two kinds. Since I'm already introduced that sanctification and glorification slide, I've been thinking about all kinds of words that are like that. Faith is one. It says in Romans 12, he's talking about the, the spiritual motivational gifts. He says, I give a measure of faith. So that means the sanctifying faith, the spiritual growth faith. Saving faith is something God gifts us. And it's a unit, it's whole, it's complete, it's done. Experiential faith, how we experience life through justification. Sometimes 
I have faced well and sometimes I have not. That should almost be a verb. It should almost be a, a comment. Hey, Rocky, did you faith well today? He'd say, John, I faith well today. John, did you faith well today? I didn't faith so well today. It's also a verb in the sanctification sense. So that's why I confuse sanctification and justification sometimes. I live my spiritual growth life, sanctification, experiencing God, and I can either buck my will or follow him. But experientially, on the justification side, he gave me faith. So faith is a gift. I cannot uh, earn saving faith, or do I deserve it? He gives it to me. Okay? Let's go back to the passage in, uh, in uh, verse 1. They've obtained a faith, beautiful statement here, of equal standing with ours. There is not the apostles' faith and the second-class citizens' faith. There's not the pastor's faith and the younger person's faith. There's not my faith and your... We all have an equal standing before God. There are no faith hierarchies in saving faith. You have it. It's obtained. Now, he says, he says that a faith of equal standing with ours... I'm not positive on this, but that ours could be the apostles. The apostles had great faith, and you got the same faith as we do. I think what it is is he's talking to the Gentiles. Uh, these, this was written to the, the, the Gentiles in Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey. Turkey, one of the most dark spiritual places in the, in the world right now, during the Christian explosion, was vibrant. And I think he's saying to the Gentiles, because he's a Jew, you've got, you got the same faith I do. If you become the saving faith in Christ, there's no the Jews have a better faith and the Gentiles have worse faith. We all have the same level of faith. So we all, let's amen that. We all have the same level of faith. Amen? amen. That's, that's a great, powerful uh, teaching. And um, let's go on to verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Anytime I see the word grace, I cannot help. I have to, if I'm in a Sunday school class, if I'm talking to you while we're drinking coffee, whatever, I have to always, because this has been a powerful teaching of my life, plug in the words, the capacity, power, and ability to do God's will. Saving faith. He gave me the power, capacity, and ability to do His will. Sanctifying faith, how to choose to, to live the, the, the life that will be pleasing Him. He gives me grace. He gives me the power, capacity, and ability to do His will. Now, as we go on the second part of the verse, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. There's many words for knowledge in the, in the uh, uh, Scripture. The, the main one's gnosis. We get Gnostic. Okay, This is epignosis. It, it's extra knowledge. It means the true knowledge. You all know me. I'm John. Linda <laughs> knows me. She truly knows me. In a relationship with Christ, we can have the true knowledge. Jesus said, depart from me. I did not know you. He wants to know us, and he wants us to know him. That's the true knowledge. In our list of knowledge, it will be something a little bit different. That's why I wanted to cover this for you. I know we'd be going fast, but now we're about to step on the gas. We're going to start covering a lot, okay? I got a quick question for you. This is assuming I'm talking to the believers. Now, I think there are some here who are not believers. But if you're a believer, this is who this passage is written to. So now I'm talking to you the whole rest of the time, okay? Do you want to be fruitful and effective? Uh, let's go for an amen. Do you want to be fruitful and effective? Amen. Amen. 
We're getting ready to see what it takes to be fruitful and effective. That's in this passage. Okay? And that's what... Uh, now I'm going to ask you some diagnostic questions for the believer. These are not famous. These just came to me as I was uh, studying this. And once again, this, the, the, what you could tell me in the Sunday school class doesn't matter. It matters what you feel in your heart right now in between the, the, your ears. Are you a godly person? No one, please no one answer. When I ask that to myself, I say, no way. Man, I know so many people more godly than me. There are a few of you that said, yes, I'm godly, and you really are. Some of you that said, yes, I'm godly, don't get what the faith is really about. Now, here we go with the diagnostic question. I think is, guys, I'm going to talk for a few more minutes, but if, if nothing else, if this next 30 seconds, you're honest with your own heart, and like God is hearing you talk and, and you're listening to the Spirit and you're listening to your mind and you answer this question honestly, this will set you off on the path of unbelievable change in your life. Here it is. It's a simple question. Do you want to be godly? Do you want to be godly? And my answer is most of the time I do. There's the times I don't. But do I want to be godly? You guys, if the Sunday school answer is yes, I want to be godly. But you know what? Some of you guys, in your own heart, thought, I don't know that I really want to be godly. Because I've experienced that. And we're going to kind of go through some roadblocks to that here in a minute. So that's the diagnostic question. Think in your mind, do you want to be godly? Let's go to verses 3 and 4. Man, I have not memorized verses 3 and 4 yet. There are at least... Ten sermons, right? These are some of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. And I, I cannot believe I haven't memorized these yet. There's so many rich doctrines in here. So let's go on and, and, and cover some of it right now. Verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Christ is fully sufficient. He has given us all, thi all things. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need a second blessing. We don't need Heritage Church, to be frank with you. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He is sufficient. We have no more needs that need to be felt. That is a powerful statement. Through the knowledge, once again, this is the true knowledge, of him who called us. Notice that God calls us and we respond. We are not the seekers. God is the seeker. He calls us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted, has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. You were born with a sinful nature. You had no divine nature. No matter how good your will made you, you were always going to fall short of God's glory, period. But once you receive the true faith, He gives you everything you need for life and godliness, and He lets you be a partaker of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and you, life, that's the first step, being born again. Jesus says, the thief which is Satan. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. 
but I come to give you life. Not only life, but more abundantly. Here's another amen point. Do you want an abundant life? Do you want an abundant life? Amen? We say we do, and sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. We get confused. Our sinful nature thinks we're satisfied with selfish things. My uh, oldest of many to come, granddaughters, is two and a half. And I was watching her on Thanksgiving. She hasn't learned yet, right? She hasn't learned. Everything, everything is about her. I want this, that, that, go do this for me, get that for me. And I love her and I'll do anything for her. But she'll learn that life is not all about her. But that's our sinful nature, right? It's all about me. It's all about me. You know, the singing duo, now, not just the girls, not just the boys, not just me, you know. Now, we're going to sing. Uh, we're not going to sing. By the way, I was teasing. I, I, even, I had this turned off when we're singing. Matter of fact, I'm singing like this. Because I thought, I, in case this was on and someone could possibly hear me, I didn't want that to be. So our sinful nature, God gives us life. But here's the thing you got to think through, or you, I want you to understand, that the abundant life, God created the universe he made us with wills to achieve and desire more and greater things. He built us that way. He knows what will satisfy us. He knows. He knows what will satisfy us. Do you know more than he does? Your selfish nature thinks you do. I'll be more satisfied if I do X or Y or Z or if I do this or that or that. That will satisfy me. But the creator of the universe knows what will satisfy you. He knows what will give you abundant life. And that's by being partakers of the divine nature and living the life he wants for us. But every day, at least every week, we fight. Paul said, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. It's because we're fighting between that divine nature and our sinful nature. So we get life. That's justification. That does not change. God reached out to us and gave us the faith, reborn us, gave us, let us be partakers of the divine nature. That is all him. We did nothing. For that, he also gave us godliness. He wanted. It says in uh, Philippians two, uh, <clears throat> work out your own salvation. That used to kind of confuse me a little bit. As, well, salvation is not by works; it's through faith alone. But I'm to work out my. Huh. If salvation works, salvation is not works. You will never be able to work your way to the righteousness that we got by by having faith in Christ. Can't do it. It's foolish and empty to try. But God does plan on us. His prescription is for us to work out our salvation. We're supposed to do this. It's a sanctification. It's God that works in us, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. We should put effort in our spiritual growth. We should put diligent effort, which is what we're getting ready to start looking at. Okay, let's go on to uh, verse 5. Starts off with, for this very reason, he's getting ready to give us a prescription. For this very reason, why? What, what is the reason he's, re, he's addressing there, looking back? Because he gave us divine power, to, that Jesus is sufficient. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness, and we're partakers of the divine nature. So because that very reason, he gives us a man, an admonition. Make every effort. He's telling you, I did it all. Now you are a child of mine. Now it's your job. To make every effort to grow in your faith. It is, our salvation is never dependent on our effort. Our abundant living 
whether we want to live life excited or miserable, is very much a function of our effort. If you want to be fruitful and effective, it's a function of your effort. If you want to live the abundant life, it's a function of your effort. Now, he'll partner with you because we're part of the divine nature now. We have the Holy Spirit. But it is, and so for every effort, make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, right over there, it says, faith alone. So that first, first reading is confusing to me. We're to supplement our faith? The answer is yes. That's what the scripture says. So we're going to look at a diagram here in a minute. Faith is the base. That does not change. Faith is the base. Then we supplement, we add on our faith with our sanctification. And we're to make diligent effort toward it. Uh, you will not grow spiritually if you don't deliberately work at it. We have this view that the let go and let God. It was, should have never been let go and let God. It should have been let go and get to work. God has saved you, now get to work. There are seven objectives, and they are in order. And we're going to spend almost all the time on the first one. We'll blast through the other one so we can get out of here reasonably. Uh, the first one is virtue. Add to your faith virtue. Matter of fact, I want to comment on that for a little bit. A new believer comes. You just got saved. And I hope that happens today for some of you. I hope you become one of the children of God today instead of a child of wrath. He becomes to be a believer. And the first thing we say, well, you need to get hooked up with Mike McGee. He'll start taking you through the navigators. We start building his knowledge. We start building his knowledge. And we skip a step. Add to your faith virtue. Then to your virtue knowledge. We have built very good... It should be change your life, give it up, repent. We're trusting in our own way for salvation by a natural man. But we are to throw that away and say, Christ, my master, I am your slave. And guys, no one wants to be a slave. But it's the creator of the universe who knows what will satisfy. And so we turn to him and we say, what, what is it, man? I, 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 and I, this is the question about do you want to be godly? I'll just tell you a little bit about when I, I was a believer, I became, I was, said I was a believer when I was nine. I went to a church. I would tell you, I'm a Christian. I mean, I was a 10-year-old. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm an 11-year-old. I'm a Christian. Sure, I'm a Christian. I never thought one second about living different. I mean, how, how bad can an 11-year-old be? But as bad as that could be, I was. I, I was a Christian. But then, it, then when I was 15, I said, man, I am wicked. I need a, a Savior for me. And I became a believer sincerely. I said, Lord, whatever you want me to do, if it's to go to Africa, I'll go to Africa. You know, <laughs> If it's to uh, never get married, I'll never get married. I, I was, boy, I was there. But I, do you want to be, add your faith to virtue? I don't know what I thought about. If you'd ask me the question, do you want to be godly? I don't know what my answer would have been. I can't remember when I was 15. I kind of think I would say, mm, mostly, mostly. And there's some roadblocks, I think, to, to being virtue. And I, there's many more than this, okay, but I'll, I'll throw out some. One is a distastefulness of false godliness. When someone's asked you, do you want to be godly? You think, no, because you picture someone who's self-righteous and judgmental and arrogant. And uh, that is not godliness. That's false godliness. And that's the ones Jesus said, you snakes and vipers. He was not at all excited about people who had false godliness. Godliness will breed an, an, a, a, 
attitude and a personhood who's attractive to others because you are gentle and loving and you want what's best for them. So one is distastefulness of false godliness. Fear of persecution is what most people are. As a teenager, and the one I put at the end was cool kid syndrome. Some of you guys are going through cool kid syndrome. I don't know who it is, but some of you are. I went through it because I thought I was one of the cool kids. Now I become a believer. Some of the things I was excited about can't excite me anymore. So I quit doing them. I quit talking certain ways. I kept doing And you know, I still wanted my friends. They're good friends of mine. They didn't want me as much. They didn't want me as But I still had friends, deep friends. But I quit getting invited to certain things and things like that. And, and I, I still want to be able to, because the Christians, the guys that were at my church that were the, the real guys, some of the real ones, yeah, they were kind of funny. Those. So if you'd asked me, do I want to be godly? I hope I would have said yes. But I kind of think my heart was going mostly, mostly, because I still want to be one of the cool kids. But I know there are certain things I don't want to do, but the cool, I mean, those guys? Then before I went to college, I'd switch. I, 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 the cool kids are gone. I'm going to be it, man. It's it. It's it. If you don't like me, you like me. If you don't, do you like me, you do. I don't know. I'm going to be it. It's going to be it. And I still send a bunch. Still send a bunch. I sinned this morning talking to Linda. Um, but I wanted to be. I wanted to be godly. I didn't care about being the cool kid anymore. Maybe it's money. Maybe you, uh, your God is money. Maybe you, if you think if I totally switch to virtue and God moving in my life, I, how about investments? You might have investments in things that God wouldn't call virtuous. How about relationships? Your friends. You think, well, if I'm not one of the cool kids, if I'm truly committed to being a slave of Christ, they may not like me anymore. You're right, but it's worth it because he is the creator. He knows what's satisfied. Or maybe you're in a relationship that's more than friends. And you think, man, if I really sell out, they won't like that person. You know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. How about habits? I could pick a habit. We all have something we shouldn't be doing. I'm not going to try to pick your habit. I hope, pray the Holy Spirit would. I hope the Holy Spirit's convicting you right now. I'll just use one. Uh, eating bluebell ice cream more than a couple times a week. Okay, that could be one of my habits that God would not be happy with because I've done that. My kids are back there. They, they think at my funeral we're going to serve bluebell ice cream just as a, as a, as a uh, way to tell everybody what I was really about. That could be a habit that God says, you know what? You're going to have more satisfaction in life if you give that up. There may be some habit in your life that's holding you back. Here's the big one. Secret sins. Secret sins. This is holding many of you back right now. If you have a little compartment of your heart that you're trying to reserve, God, I'm it. Except that. That's one thing. And you try to be secretive about it. And uh, matter of fact, I'm just going to use an example of one. Let's talk about pornography. That's a lot more prevalent here than you know in our church, in any church. The guy says, well, I want to be committed. And they try to keep it a secret. Secret sin is Satan's stronghold. If you'll confess it and say, yes, Lord, you're right. I'm going to give it up. And even better than that, say, David, i got a problem with pornography. Do you mind if I put you in my buddy list that every time I look at the wrong side, it's going to email you so you can ask me about it. Secret sins are Satan's stronghold. 
But the, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Everything in our worldview system exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Everything. And we're to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So maybe you don't have a habit, but you have a bad thought. You're supposed to bring that to Christ's obedience. Okay? The next one in the, in the passage is knowledge. Add to your faith virtue, then your virtue knowledge. Now, this one is not epignosis. This is not the true knowledge. This is informational, doctrinal. So how would your faith, how would your virtue be before knowledge? Because knowledge will puff up. But now that you've got your heart right, you can learn truths. One was about um, being convicted. That's verse, uh, the virtue. The knowledge is about developing convictions. I have convictions, things I purpose not to do no matter what. One of my convictions is to love my wife as, life, as Christ loved the church. I had to read the Bible and know that's what he wanted of me. To give an inheritance to my children's children, a spiritual inheritance. That's a God motivated me through his ramus to develop that as a conviction. So we read the scriptures to learn more how to behave in a way of growing Christian. We can be a non-growing Christian too. And we'll just address that here in a minute. Beyond, uh, we have add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge, add to your knowledge, self-control. Guys, these are sequential and built on each other. It's add to, add to, add to, add to. That's why my diagram has it going up in blocks. Self-control is inward strength and constraint. Someone who is not a believer can have self-control. It's an act of their will. So it's part an act of our will. But we are now partakers of the divine nature. We have the Holy Spirit part that will give us an extra strength that those who do it by their will do not have. Self-control is bringing all physical appetites under the control of the Holy Spirit. Bluebell ice cream, premarital relations, pornography, whatever your appetites of your flesh are, bringing them all under control is self-control. The next one is steadfastness. Steadfastness is perseverance, it's patience, it's consistency, it's endurance. It doesn't give up. And we were just talking about this in ABF. I think Tracy mentioned it. That uh, one of the biggest testimonies you'll ever have in your faith is when struggle comes in your life. But you're steadfast. But you're steadfast. That is your witness to the world around you is your steadfastness. Others, life will happen. God did not remove us from the struggles. That will happen in heaven. Here, we're supposed to go through the struggles so that we can receive God's grace and handle them differently, and that will be a testimony to others. And uh, we, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of the main reasons God allows us to go through struggles is so that he can show himself in his power, the part of the divine nature that we become partakers of, that we can handle it differently, that we're steadfast. So faith, virtue, excuse me, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, then finally that goes to godliness. Godliness is being aware of God's ways and wanting to live by them. 
Simple. Love what God loves and hate what God hates. Simple rule of life. Now, how do you know sincerely what God loves and what he hates? Through the knowledge you get by the word. Then you develop habits of self-control and you become steadfast. Then finally, and all these have been internal, and even the next ones are, are still uh, internal, but they have an external event. So now we've gone from developing ourselves to having a ministry to others. And the next one's brotherly affection. It says in Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. That's Philadelphia is that word used in both passages. And what it says in Romans was outdo one another in showing honor. And back to when I was uh, still wanting to be a cool kid, okay? I gave that up. And Linda and I developed some deep friendships with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Those were great. I'd, I'd, I've even seen some cliques here in our church that on one side are really good. They're deep brothers and sisters in the Lord. They fellowship with each other. And that's where I'd gotten and God used Luke 9.23 one day. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And here's what that, that meant to me that day. There's always one interpretation, but the Spirit brought a rhema alive to me. It was this. John, you used to kind of want to hang out with the cool kids, and you've given that up. Now you've you're, you're, you got this brotherly affection thing going on. You love being with the brothers, and I did. I didn't care to talk about OU football. I did. Didn't care to talk about the stock market. I did. I didn't care to talk about golf. I did. I didn't back then. I didn't know golf. But I would rather talk to you about faith and what's God doing in your life. That was what I liked, fellowship. And what he said to me that, that day, and led me that day, I, he didn't say to me, okay, was there's a guy at work who was the biggest reprobate I've ever met in my life. He said, I want you to start going out to lunch with him. It's not brotherly affection. Oh, yes, it is. You have gotten to the place. You've, get, you, you've added to your faith virtue. You've finally moved up the steps. Now that you, your psyche wants to have fellowship all the time, go be a little, go, go get with the dirty guys. And I'd like to tell you that this guy got saved. He didn't. But I did. I started going to lunch with him because he needed to see what a believer could be. Okay? And some of you guys who are in your cliques of Brotherhood, this is going to sound so secular, but I mean it. You need to learn to be more relatable. You need to learn to talk about OU football or Arkansas football or Oklahoma State football or, or golf or the stock market so that if your heart really wants to only be on brotherly affection, you need to learn to be more relatable so that others will be attracted to the life that God has given you, which is the final one, which is agape love, right? And agape love is that we... Love others with what we know is more beneficial to them. It's more beneficial to them. That we, we care. I, that, guys, I love my family, and I, I'm approaching agape love. No, I'm not there, but I'm approaching it because sincerely as I can say, Ella, my little granddaughter, and Olivia, who's here today, she's, what, three months old, two months old? She's not hearing me very well, but anyway. I sincerely want what's best for them. I will give up. I will sacrifice. I don't care if they want something versus satisfying me or satisfying them. It's them. It's them. That is agape love. When your ministry turns to where you really care what's best for others instead of yourself, that's when you'll begin to experience this. Okay. These are the steps. God wants our calling and election 
to be confirmed. These things we just talked about do not cause your calling and election. They confirm it. They confirm it. He wants our calling and election. He wants us to know that we are His. So how do we do that? Let's look in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How? If you practice these qualities. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. We just gave you the seven things that you need to be practicing. If you want to have your calling and election confirmed, you practice those seven qualities. How about verse 11? For in this way, you will be richly provided for and an entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I have skipped something. Let's go back. It's an important thing. I, I skipped some stuff. I'm, let's go back to 8. This is a, one thing I really wanted to talk about. Back to 8. I'm sorry. I turned the page too early. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. So the antithesis of that is true. If you want to be fruitful and effective, you apply these qualities and you increase in them. And once again, this is the true knowledge of, of, of Jesus Christ our Lord. We started off today talking about remembering. We remember in Thanksgiving. We come to church every week to remember. God says you're forgetting like crazy to the Israelites. And I know Christians forget too. Then in verse 9, he says one of the most saddest things I've ever seen. And here it is. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities... This is a believer. This is written to believers. This is not a lost man. This is a believer. If he lacks these qualities, he's so nearsighted he is blind. Having forgotten. That's why we remember. He was forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So one time a guy becomes a believer, and you're this guy. There's three types, there's two types of people right there. The lost man's not even on this foundation of faith. A saved man is either going to look toward the discipline, the, the, the impassioned spiritual growth quest, or he is not. It would be a lot easier to stay at home in bed on Sunday morning. Memorize the scripture, that's, that's hard. He just kind of doesn't care. He's turned gentle. He is blind. He is blind about it, and he's forgotten his cleansing. If we could every day think of how holy God is, how unholy we are, and how much he has cleansed us, we will pursue what the Creator created us to have a satisfied life. But if we do not pursue, we forget. We forget how deep our sin debt is. Because we've forgotten how deep our sin debt is, we start thinking the world system sounds pretty good. Oh, you're such a prude. Oh, you're, you know, you're just one of those religious fanatics because you live differently. Because you live differently. We forget how deep our sin pattern is. And so we are not effective. We are not fruitful. We are blind and we're nearsighted. And that is the path I fear for some of you today. So these are the guys. When I said, do you want to be godly? That doesn't make you godly. Most of the times, then let's get to busy 
with adding to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And if I asked you the question, do you want to be godly? And you said, well, I don't know. You're that guy. You're going to go blind and going to forget the debt that Christ paid for you. Okay, the last verse was that God will richly provide for us. We'll stop there. Let's uh, look on down. Eh, let me throw out a little bit of controversy while I'm at it, okay? I, I wasn't going to do this, but I decided to. Years ago, Dave Dawson, our church's uh, sponsor, he's probably 30 years at the Key Man's, uh, he, he threw out a deal about the crowns, about those rewards that we can take to heaven. So I've had this on my backdrop of my mind. There's heaven, that's taken care of. But are there levels? I mean, is there? And I, so I, I kind of think there is, but I don't have the courage to tell you that doctrinally yet. So I just thought, here's what John MacArthur said about this verse, okay? You guys, I, I don't know about it, but here's what he said. At salvation, the matter of the entrance into the kingdom was settled. So it's going to happen. But not the manner of the entrance. At the moment of salvation, the fact of our entrance into the eternal kingdom was settled. But the manner of that interest was not settled. How grandiose our eternal reward is is related to how diligent you pursue virtue. So summing it up, for those who pursue virtue in, his li in this life diligently, they receive two things. Here and now they get the assurance of their salvation. Then and there they get abundant blessing. All I know is I hope you, whether you came in today with that or not, I hope you're leaving today. Let's look at the bottom of your uh, program. I want to talk to you real quick and we'll be out of here. There's one, the bucket on the left is for the guys who are not, aren't on that foundation of faith yet. Okay? That's life's eternal question, eternal consequences. Today, you're going to walk out that door and you're either going to say, yeah, I'm not a Christian. Or maybe you're going to say, I'm still thinking about it. And that's all fine. But if God today in his heart convicted you, when I said you listen to what's in between your head, that no, I am not, but I want to be, but I want to be. The church I grew up in gave lengthy, emotional uh, invitation calls. We're not going to do that. But I kind of miss them because I like seeing God working in people's lives. And the fact that we all go out and we don't see God working in people's lives, maybe we think he isn't. But if today, if you're on that part of the chart that you say, no, I wasn't a believer, but I got convicted today, I want to be, man, when we leave, you come down and talk to me or somebody, we will tell you, help you know everything you need to know about stepping into that element. I wouldn't wait five minutes. I, I would, as soon as the music's over, I'd get down right here and talk to me, and I'd love to talk to you if that's where you're at. Now, the right-hand side of the equation, those were... Uh, decisions on what are your eternal consequences. On the right-hand side, there's two buckets also. You're in one of those two buckets. You're either in the bucket of the guy that says, eh, I don't want to be godly. And you are not going to, you're going to have frustration. You're going to have, you get this, you're a partaker of the divine nature, but you're kind of always fighting against it. Your life is not going to be abundant. Jesus promised us an abundant life. You're not going to have that. If you want that abundant life, if when I ask you the question, do you want to be godly, if you kind of went, no, mostly, or I think, mm, but today God's Holy Spirit convicted you to no, I want to be godly and I haven't been. I think it would be great to meet with someone and we'll get you set up and, and help you work your life. The diligent pursuit, the diligent pursuit of these seven qualities will make your calling and election sure 
It confirms it. It does not do anything to get you there. It only confirms it in your heart. And it will let you live the abundant life that no matter what circumstances come in your life, whatever struggles or issues or terrible things, God will give you the internal grace to say, this is a great life. This is a great life. So if you want to get from one bucket to the other, you need to talk to someone today. With that, we're going to be done. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for today and thank you for everything you've taught me in my heart. I pray the Holy Spirit would convince people of their salvation right now. They would have their calling and election firm. I pray, Lord, for the folks who have not wanted to be godly and you want to convict them today that they would make a change and you would awaken that divine nature and get them associated with folks who will encourage them in that regard. And Father, for those that are here today that are lost, I cry the Holy Spirit right now. We just convict them of their sin, your righteousness, and the judgment that comes so that they might become one of the brethren instead of one of the children of wrath. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.